Hello everyone and welcome to the latest Revdem Rule of Law podcast. My name is Teodoro Milojkiewicz, I'm an associate uh, editor and today I have a great um, chance to meet Professor Adam Schinner. Professor Adam Schinner is an associate professor at Harvard University Law School at Heidman University. He holds an uh, LLB from Hebrew University in Jerusalem and LLM from Harvard Law School, also PhD from Harvard Law School. Uh, he specializes in constitutional law and theory and comparative constitutional law. Uh, he's a member of the board of directors of the Association of Civil Rights in Israel and an academic advisory board member of the Israel Supreme Court Project at Kandosa Law School at Yeshiva University. Uh, in addition to his um, academic career, he also clerked for the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, Adam Barak, and worked as an attorney for several human rights and deals in Israel and India. Uh, hello, uh, Professor Schinner. It's uh, very nice to have you today with us. Hi, Theodora. Thank you very much for having me. Um, okay, so uh, as I assume uh, that today's uh, topic uh, is uh, quite predictable, obviously, uh, because it's been in the media for the last month, we're going to be discussing Israeli judicial reform. Um, Israel has been at the center of international attention in the last couple of months due to the government's announced judicial reform. Um, just to give a bit of an interest to our listeners, not much after Netanyahu was sworn in the minister, as a minister of the 37th Israeli government in late uh, 2022, uh, his cabinet presented a set of laws to overhaul the existing judicial system um, completely. All of the reforms are currently on hold. Uh, citizens from both camps, pro and against the reform, uh, have been protesting for weeks now. So, to someone unfamiliar with the Israeli context, it is perhaps hard to grasp the implication of such a judicial reform. So, Professor, let's break it down. Um, as I understood, there are four aspects, uh, the main four aspects of this reform that somehow stood out. Uh, and uh, shortly, uh, the first one refers to the override clause, which would limit the competency of the Israeli Supreme Court uh, in relation to uh, Knesset. Uh, uh, there is also a huge problem with the change of the composition of the Judicial Selection Committee and overall change to the appointment of judges. Um, there is a further limitation to the Supreme Court's competencies, uh, and more specifically, I refer to the standard of extreme unreasonableness, which um, the government thinks is a huge problem. And also we have a changed role of the ministerial legal advisor. So could you shortly explain to us what these uh, changes stand for, uh, what are their implications, and if there are any, any other significant changes that uh, this set of laws propose? Right. Okay. Well, these, exact, these are basically the four pillars, the four main components of what you described. Uh, what's at present is at the center of attention is judicial appointments. Uh, this, uh, because the government has this, because of the protests, and actually just maybe I'll just make one comment that you're right to say that there have been protests from both uh, supporters and pro and those who oppose the plan, but it's really not comparable uh, in, in the sense of there's there are very few demonstrations for those who support the plan, mm -hmm. uh, both in terms of scope and in number. The massive demonstrations that we've been seeing in Israel have been going on now for 15 weeks straight with demonstrations every week. Each demonstration, well over 100,000 people in Tel Aviv and, and also uh, thousands of people uh, elsewhere in the country and other places. And there's massive resistance. Uh, and even the terminology here is important because you refer to these as reforms and the government refers to these as reforms. Uh, mm -hmm. But protesters, what they see is or what they refer to, they call a revolution or a coup. Uh, because reform has a positive connotation and they refuse to attach it with a positive connotation. Okay, so with that, having said that, let's get back to what's what's at present now. So, so the present now is judicial, the Judicial Selection Committee uh, uh, because that has gone the most, that's the most advanced in the, in the legislative process. Uh, it's past the committee stage. It's ready for the final hearing. The government has decided to uh, suspend the, uh, the the final vote, but it, uh, the suspense of the final the suspension of the final vote is only um, well. It's not really clear what's going to happen with that because the Knesset is now on a Passover break. It will return uh, soon to the Knesset, and there are now discussions going on 
at the pre uh, under the sponsorship of the president trying to reach some compromise. It's not really clear whether a compromise will be reached. And if compromise is not reached, then the government at least declares that it's once it resumes from the break, we'll continue and proceed with the Judicial Selection uh, Committee. That's the first stage. Uh, and that will clear the path for everything else. So let's start each uh, each component. So the Judicial Selection Committee right now, Israel, since 1953, uh, elects its judges in a way that is quite different from a lot of European countries. Uh, it has a committee. Uh, and the committee comprises uh, three Supreme Court judges, uh, two government ministers, two members of parliament, sometimes one from the opposition, one from the coalition, but sometimes also two from the coalition, the, the Knesset chooses, and two members of the Israel bar, uh, which means it's a nine-member committee, and to, in order to appoint somebody to the Supreme Court, you needed a uh, uh, majority of seven out of the nine. That means that every block cannot appoint somebody that it wants. The judges are only three, they need the politicians. The politicians are only four or three, depending on how you count, and so they need the judges. And nobody can unilaterally operate. And that uh, leads to bargaining among the different groups in order to reach some consensus. Uh, what the government wants to do now with its new reform is change the committee and basically make it from an, uh, a nine-member committee to change it uh, to uh, uh, an 11-member committee. And under in, in that 11-member... Uh, uh, 11 member committee will it will still comprise three judges but it will comprise more politicians the the it won't, you won't need a special majority like seven of the nine you need only six of the 11 to appoint and uh, the government says for the first two appointments each for each Knesset term for each parliament term the government or the coalition will have the first two appointments it won't have to take into consideration what the judges say, what the opposition says. It will unilaterally appoint two judges. With the third appointment, you will need a member of the opposition to go along, one member. With the fourth appointment, you will need a member of the Supreme Court to go along. Um, but the critics say about this composition is because most governments don't get to appoint four or five judges per term then the court will be politicized very quickly because most governments will only appoint two or three judges, uh, meaning that the, these judges will be completely politicized and uh, will almost give government complete control of the judges, which means that in 10 to 15 years, the Supreme Court, uh, which was or still is a uh, institution that is comprised of judges who are appointed according to professional standards and not political standards, or not only political standards, are now only going to become Political. So the critics to the plan see this as a way for the government to capture the court, similar to what's been going on maybe in Poland and in Hungary. Of course, there are differences, but uh, but that's how they identify. So they, they identify this not only they don't look at this as just two appointments. They're looking at this as inserting political partisan considerations into a process that uh, was not that where these considerations were not very dominant and they see this as completely corrupting the Supreme Court, but not just the Supreme Court, because this is the committee that appoints all judges to all the courts. And it's the same committee that decides uh, on the promotion of judges from within the system. So they see the whole system as becoming, uh, uh, the, the incentives of the system will be different and will become politicized both in the appointment process and both in the promotion process. And uh, so this is a major, major change in the way that judges are appointed. Um, and what these people are concerned is that these that, that judicial appointments in Israel are gonna become somewhat Americanized. Like, you know, this appointee is a Biden appointee, this is a Trump appointee, this is an Obama appointee, and the whole system will be identified along political lines. And that's a huge shift from what it used to be. That's component number one. The second component, and uh, is changing judicial review, the institution of judicial review. Um, since 1995, uh, the Supreme Court has announced its power to strike down legislation. It didn't have this power, but because of what's known in Israel as the Constitutional Revolution that followed the enactment of two basic laws uh, dealing with civil rights and human rights, the Supreme Court said that these basic laws are supreme, 
to regular legislation. And when there's a conflict, the, the, the basic laws prevail and the Supreme Court can announce uh, uh, this conflict and, 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 can, and can strike down the statutes. Um, the government believes, and this is the motivation for this plan, that the Supreme Court has become too activist, too involved in Israeli politics. And of course, this right-wing government also believes that this court is too liberal, that it's out of step with current Israeli mainstream opinions. And therefore, what the judicial appointments that we saw is a way to bring the court back into line, to make it reflect the mainstream uh, political positions in Israel. And, what, and if this is not enough, they're also going to revamp the institution of judicial review. So the Supreme Court in Israel uh, sits usually in panels of three, although in, sometimes it sits in panels of five or seven or nine, depending on the gravity of the situation. And you need a regular majority to strike down laws. So if it sits, for example, in a panel of seven, then four against three, the law is struck down. The new law says, no, no, that's not good enough. Uh, striking down laws should be extreme and rare. Although in Israel, I got to say that it is rare. Uh, in the past 30 years, the Supreme Court has only struck down 22 provisions in laws. So we're talking about less than one provision per year. But okay. So, so, so under the new plan, the, the Supreme Court will only be able to strike down legislation if it sits in a panel of 15 judges. That's all the judges together. No longer panels of three or five or seven or eight. And only if 12 of the 15 judges agree that the law should be struck down. So you needed an 80% majority, a super majority, to strike down legislation. Uh, of course, there are other there are countries with super majority uh, requirements for judicial review. Most countries are not, don't have the super majority requirement. But even those who do, most of them are around 66%, uh, uh, two thirds, not 80%. I think only two countries, I think maybe Chile or El Salvador have 80% um, requirement. And, and this is where we get to what you mentioned, if this is not enough, the, 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 the new plan says, even if you somehow managed under our new politicized system to get 15 judges and 12 of the 15 to agree, the Knesset, the Israel's parliament, still has what's called an override clause. The Knesset can, with a regular majority, 61 out of the 120 seats in the Knesset, and because Israel is a parliamentary system, every government has at least 61 seats, otherwise it wouldn't be a government, it wouldn't enjoy confidence of the parliament. Um, so with a, a vote of 61, the, the Knesset can override a Supreme Court decision that struck down a law. It can come and say, yes, we understood that you struck down the law, but we want to uh, uh, have, we want the law to operate notwithstanding the Supreme Court decision, and therefore we're going to reenact it and in order to reenact it in a way that it will not, that will operate uh, um, regardless of the Supreme Court decision, the, the Knesset will have to say explicitly that they're doing this uh, regardless of the basic law and with a 61 majority, which is not very difficult to assemble. That's judicial review. And then there are the two other components, and I'll be brief because I've been going along with this. I mean, because it takes a long time just to explain. Because the very the, complex, the, yeah. it, it's complicated, and what and what's really special about these so-called reforms is that you can really understand them when you, when you do like a zoom out and look at everything together. Then you see how all the parts hang together. Because if it was just one thing, then you wouldn't, you know. Okay, the the second. Oh, maybe I should also add about judicial review. And and, and another feature of the new plan is that the Supreme Court will not have the ability to review basic laws themselves. The Supreme Court has said that it has the ability to review also basic laws, not just laws. And, and under the new plan, uh, it takes away that uh, authority. Okay, and, and the third and fourth components, the third component, as you mentioned, is uh, limiting the reasonableness clause. Israel has a very uh, robust unreasonableness doctrine in administrative law. It basically means that the court can strike down not just acts that are extremely unreasonable or absurd, or, or completely arbitrary and capricious, but also uh, administrative measures that didn't properly weigh or give the proper weight to competing considerations of the, the, the administrative agency had to do. And this also has enabled the court to intervene in a lot of what's called political matters. For example, the appointments of ministers. 
especially what the government is upset about is a long-standing doctrine in Israeli administrative law that reviews the prime minister's discretion when appointing ministers. And according to this doctrine, if a minister, if somebody, if a if, uh, if, sorry, if the prime minister wants to appoint somebody, and that person has been indicted for criminal charges but has not yet been convicted, the court has said that it's an unreasonable to appoint that person to a minister, and the government is uh, rejects this idea. And, and therefore, part of the motivation for changing the unreasonableness clause is, 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 is this. And the fourth is the legal advisors in the executive branch. Uh, right now, legal advisors in the executive branch are independent. There are non-political appointments. They're selected by a committee that is not essentially not a political committee. They're difficult to dismiss because the idea is they should be independent so they can tell the government minister, look, this you can't do, or this you can do, but only in this way. And if they were subject to the will of the minister and they could be fired easily, then they would most likely go along with the minister, even when there's a suspicions of illegality. That's the, that was the concern. The new government plan says, no, all the legal advisors will be political appointments. They'll be you know, hired and fired at the will of the minister. And, but also their advice will not be binding. In Israel right now, the advice of the legal advisor is considered binding by the Supreme Court. The new plan says, no, the, the legal advisor is only an advisor. And if, and if the minister chooses to ignore the legal advice, he's free to choose to ignore the legal advice. So if we take a zoom out of all this, what we really see is a, is a very drastic, uh, radical weakening of checks on government power. Because the government already controls the Knesset, because it has a majority. And the only breaks on the power are on the court, on the one hand or internal breaks in the executive branch. And what the plan does is weaken both the external checks by limiting judicial review and politicizing judicial appointments and minimizing the internal breaks on executive power that come from uh, such gatekeepers or veto players like uh, legal advisors. So that's the basic architecture of the plan. Yes. So Yes. So basically what we could say at this point, when we, when we, as you say, zoom out, we can see that this is not just a judicial reform. So basically this, this could imply a reform of the whole constitutional uh, architecture of Israel when we consider the long-term uh, implications. Uh, so um, I was just like, let's start, uh, but let's go back to the judiciary first, because um there is this problem, uh, as you said, uh, when you compared it to the U.S. So we know that uh, the, the problem in the U.S. With, uh, um, with the judiciary and the politicized appointments because it, it backlashed uh, on both sides, basically. And what we see now is that this idea, because usually it was, right, it was the uh, Republicans who wanted to... Um, uh, who wanted to minimize uh, the, the, the court's... Um, participation in political uh, life of the citizens. But now what we see is the opposite. We see uh, activist courts on the, uh, activist court on the other side. So there is a need to, uh, let's say, rebalance the political, uh, the political influence of the court because of this different majority. So this is a very tricky because if we talk about, uh, if we talk about it from a constitutional perspective, then, um, what is, <laughs> So, so what what are the what are the lessons here? Uh, what are the constitutional lessons here? And what is this like? Let's just go back to this idea of of uh, aristocracy uh, and uh, think about whether uh, Israeli government has any legitimate uh, reason to to claim that there is a need. Uh, to actually re politically restrain uh, the Supreme Court, because as you said, it's very different. Um, the situation is very different. If we again talk about the U.S., it's very different because uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is very active. But as you said, the Israeli Supreme Court did not very often uh, strike uh, laws down. So uh, do you think there is really uh, that this idea of activist Israeli Supreme Court uh, is really uh, to that extent accurate so it needs uh, restraint. So is there any truth to that and it's abused or you think it's just uh, a pretext which has no factual uh, basis? Okay, so you asked a lot of different questions and I'll try to <laughs> address, address them in turn. So first of all, I just a point maybe of clarification to the listeners that 
Unlike other constitutional courts, the Israel Supreme Court is not just a constitutional court. In fact, very few of the cases are constitutional cases. Because Israel's uh, Supreme Court is a, is a court of common law, it, it, most, of the, uh, most of its cases are non-constitutional cases. Most of the cases are criminal appeals and civil appeals and some administrative appeals, but actually constitutional cases that challenge the constitutionality of statutes there are a very, very small number of the sums. So when we're talking about all these changes to judicial review and to judicial appointments, we have to understand that they're also going to affect regular cases, contract cases, bankruptcy cases, criminal law cases. Uh, and and, and so that's important to keep in mind when we compare it to, for example, to Europe and we see how constitutional judges in Europe are appointed. And yes, but that's only that's because of constitutional court. In Israel, it's not just a constitutional court. Okay, now... As a matter of activism, so I think it's I think these conversations about activism are very very difficult to have because it's not it's not always clear who is being activist. So first of all, one can definitely be activist both on the right and on the left, right? So it's not just something that leftists like or rightists don't like or something. What the right wing in Israel has argued is that the Supreme Court has been activist in one direction mostly, which is the left direction, I think that has that is relatively unsubstantiated, right? In the sense, there are many, I mean, of course, in some areas, the Supreme Court in Israel has been more liberal than, let's just say, the other political branches, maybe when it comes to free speech, maybe when it comes to equality, maybe when it comes to uh, privacy, things like that, whatever. But of course, that's also to be expected in a way from a Supreme Court that sees its position as protecting human rights or political rights and as protecting minorities. But in many, many areas, other areas, the Supreme Court has not been activist at all and in fact has let the government do almost whatever it wants. The major uh, area of that is, for example, the Israeli control of Palestinians in the occupation, right? Supreme Court hears many, many cases dealing with the occupation. But, you know, nine times out of 10 or nine and a half times out of 10, the Supreme Court will reject the petition and will let the government do whatever it wants. Uh, think about administrative detentions, house demolitions, the construction of settlements, and a lot of other things. The Supreme Court has, has, go, has gone along and not intervened. Uh, no, the Supreme Court has been activist in certain senses. For example, in the 1980s, the Supreme Court really relaxed its standing and justiciability requirements. Uh, it's true that almost almost everybody can come to the Supreme Court and file a grievance, and the Supreme Court will, in principle, hear a lot of issues. But uh, if we put to the moment the rhetoric aside, uh, de facto, that hasn't led to greater intervention. It has led to a greater potential intervention. And I think a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the arguments against the Supreme Court are not necessarily against this or that decision. There are th those arguments as well, but also about how the court has positioned itself as a, a, as a more powerful player than it used to be in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And the court has become, according to the proponents of the plan, such an, uh, an important veto player that it's the ultimate decider. So if you go, if you go to these people and tell them, look, but in the end, the court doesn't intervene, they will say that doesn't matter. What matters is its potential to intervene. Uh, the fact that you, the fact that we are not the final word. The fact that the court is the final word. The fact that the court is willing to entertain any petition, even in the end, it rejects that petition. It still has people still go to the court, and the court has to, reviews everything that we do: security things, political uh, uh, issues, uh, uh, foreign affairs, all these things. So. Um, so that's one thing, of, and, and I think that is true in a sense. It's true that the court has become a more powerful player than it used to be uh, 30, 40, 30 or 40 years ago. That's true. Um, in terms of intervention, yes, the court sometimes intervenes, but you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's uh, activist in a in a way that is very different from other supreme courts. But of course, I mean, if you talk to somebody else uh, who, who supports the plan, they will point to particular decisions. They will tell you, for example, how the Supreme Court interprets the right to dignity 
in the basic law, and it includes indignity, free speech, and equality, two uh, rights that the Knesset purposefully left out of the basic laws because they couldn't reach an agreement, political agreement. So that's for example. Or they would tell you about how the Supreme Court has asserted its power to review basic laws and adopted the unconstitutional constitutional amendment doctrine. There, the, the, there's no uh, formal basis for that uh, for that adoption. So yes, we can point to areas where the court has been uh, activist, uh, but um, de facto, the, I think activism is not as big as the supporters portray it to be. Uh, but also, maybe I would maybe say was that that part of the activism, I think, if you look at it from a political science perspective, is a compensation of because of the lack of other checking mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. So Israel is not a federalist country. Uh, we don't have regional elections. We don't have two houses of parliament. We don't have a presidential system that can veto the parliament. We're not subject to any international uh, court, like the European Court of Human mm -hmm. Rights. So I think the court also understood this, and they said, look, there's only the parliament. The government controls the parliament. There needs to be more meaningful checks on government power. And that has been maybe the motivation of the court to adopt these things that may be perceived as activists, but they should be also uh, considered given the more basic structure of the system itself. Mm -hmm. Yes, what we have here then is uh, somehow, you know, the politicization of the government, uh, so government politicizes uh, these basic Supreme Court competences in protection of human rights as uh, ideological and political. So basically, um, that's, uh, that, that's very, um, as we know, that's very concerning. But um, my question would also be, um, and I probably, I, yeah, I didn't mention yet. So besides this activism uh, argument, um, is there any other uh, reason that uh, perhaps uh, Israeli judicial system needs uh, respond because uh, Professor Stern, uh, uh, as I read in uh, his analysis for Jerusalem Post, stated that uh, those who oppose the reform as a whole are, are wrong, but they also those who su uh, support the reform as a whole are also wrong. So m my question here would be, um, what do you think? Uh, what what is their legitimate? Like, wh where is the legitimate need uh, to change the Israeli judicial system outside of this activism? Right. So look, I think. Like any system, of course, no system is perfect and any system can need changes. The problem, I think, is that these changes don't address the real problems. Now, if we acknowledge the real problems in the Israeli judicial system and we look at these reforms, these reforms are not going to do what, they're not going to fix the problems. The problems are not that the court strikes down too many statutes and therefore we have to have 12 of the 15 judges, right? The problem is not with the override clause and we need an override clause, um, for those whatever 22 provisions the, the Supreme Court has struck down in the past 30 years. Israeli Supreme, the Israeli legal system as a whole has real problems. First of all, the problem is that there are, it's, it's, a, it's a system that bureaucratically is underperforming, right? In the sense of there's a lot of cases, there are too few judges, there are a lot of backlogs. The experience of being a litigant is not a pleasant experience. Nobody wants to go to court because it could take them forever to reach a decision. And I'm not talking about the Supreme Court, I'm talking about the regular lower courts. Uh, there needs to be uh, uh, better criminal proceedings. There needs to be more uh, uh, um, um, awareness to uh, defendants' rights to criminal procedure rights. Uh, there needs to be, there need to be more judges on the whole. The Supreme Court is too, uh, is too busy. We, maybe, there's, maybe there could be another appellate uh, function. Um, there is, trying to think of, of other re reforms, right? Um, this, so the, the point, the, maybe, so one, of the, one argument that the pro proponents of the reforms are saying is that there's not enough diversity in the judges. They just come from one sector. They're mostly Ashkenazi Jews or they're men or they're second or whatever. If people want more diversity, in the, the, I think this is true, especially for the Supreme Court, not so much for the lower courts. There are things that people can do to reach more diversity. Although I think the diversity argument is problematic because there are some groups that are overrepresented and, and, and so forth. But I think a lot of the problem with Israeli governments doesn't lie with the court. I mean, I think to portray just a situation to say, look, we have this huge problem with the court. That's just not true. The problems of Israeli society are elsewhere. 
and we see this with his reforms. So these reform, the, the protests against these reforms started out as protests against these reforms, against what we talked about. But a couple of months into the demonstrations, the protests have really transformed into something else. They're not about the reasonableness clause. They're not about you know the judicial composition. They're about really the nature of this country, and what and what these reforms have uh, revealed is that there are a lot of deep divisions and polarization among Israeli publics about whether this country will be or can be a liberal country versus forces that are perceived as illiberal, conservative, fundamentalist, religious forces who also support the reforms. And what these people see, and I think they see it rightly in the sense that these reforms are only the first step. And that's what they're concerned with. They're, they're, what they're telling themselves, look, the government mm -hmm. wants to pass reforms, but there are no real problems with the judiciary, at least not as they make it out to be. So why do they want these reforms? And the answer has to be, well, they want to weaken the internal and external checks on power because after they do that, then they're going to advance their real substantive policies. And they realize that if they advance their substantive policies now, those policies will likely be struck down by the court. And so the people here are worried about the day after the reforms, about what discriminatory policies do you want to adopt uh, towards women, towards LGBT, towards Arabs? What about the occupation? You know, the policy uh, regarding the Palestinians. And, and, and uh, or, and that's one thing they're concerned about, the deterioration of civil and political and human rights more generally. But they're also concerned uh, about these reforms being only the gateway to the government entrenching itself in power and making its replacement very, very difficult. Similarly to what you see in Poland, the Hungary, and other places. And they identify this uh, as a government accreting and concentrating a lot of its power, weakening other checks on power, and that will enable it to continue to exert all this power come next election and ensure that it's going to be elected again. And I think that's what's driving the concern. And it's not about, I, I really don't think it's anymore about how the Judicial Committee looks like. And of course, that's an important issue, but I think that's only the prelude to what we're, what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. And yes, so now that you mentioned uh, comparison to Hungary and Poland, we can obviously see this uh, liberal aspect. So would you, would you say this is, this is one step towards uh, a, liberal, uh, a liberal state in Israel? That's one question. And the second question is, as you mentioned, uh, Israeli situation is very different because, uh, for example, like uh, if we saw in Hungary and Poland, the EU has been the main um, uh, opposing force against the liberal forces. So, what to do in Israel? What is uh, like uh, as we see the developments in both Poland and Hungary, and now in Israel, uh, when the government wants to entrench the power, the first the first uh, thing they're going to do is capture the courts. So, the courts are the most uh, vulnerable. Um, actors in the system. So my question is, this is more of a theoretical, let's say, question of constitutional theory. So what is the source of judicial resilience and uh, judicial independence if, um, for example, there are no external, uh, there are no external uh, mechanisms? Uh, in Israel, we see now that there is a huge political uh, effort to protect. So I guess that, that would be the, the answer. Uh, which I really want uh, would want to hear more about. But my question is more from this constitutional perspective. Like, are there within the constitutional design itself mechanisms to protect judiciary, or we have to simply um, have a different like have a different perspective, and we have to see that the courts are not just these institutions; they're not just their prerogatives; they're not just uh, written in some uh, document there. That's there definitely entrenched within the society and then they depend on society but also society depends on them so basically we have to see courts as these um not only uh institutional not only constitutional actors but also as uh social actors right so i think i think both aspects are correct i think there's there are some guarantees of judicial independence in israel and i'll talk about them but there's also a culture of judicial independence so in terms of guarantees yes 
that there's judicial independence uh, is enshrined in basic law, the judiciary. Uh, judges, once appointed, serve until they're 70 years old. It's very, very difficult to uh, uh, dismiss and, and fire judges. Uh, the same committee that appointment that appoints them has to dismiss them, but the, for that, then it, re, it requires uh, a supermajority, seven of the nine, or nine out of the eleven, or whatever there will be. Uh, so, uh, in, 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 the, in the history of Israel, only one judge has been fired or dismissed through this uh, uh, committee, um, and uh, of course, the salary is, is determined independently. Uh, and they have all these, uh, and they're, they're, they have immunity. Uh, you know, they can't be uh, sued in torts uh, for their decisions. So we have all these mechanisms that ensures their independence. But we also have a strong culture of independence. I think one of the differences between Poland and Hungary and Israel uh, is Israel has a longer track record with democracy. Uh, Poland and Hungary were became democratic maybe after the communist collapse in 1989, uh, but that, that was only from 1989, and it takes a long time to build a democratic country. Um, Israel uh, has been a democracy since 1948, 75 years now. So the, now this is not to say by any means that Israel is anywhere near a perfect democracy. Obviously, the situation with Arab citizens inside Israel uh, with vast areas of discrimination and also, of course, the control of millions of people, the Palestinians who don't have the right to vote for their representatives while the Israeli military controls them, that, of course, casts a whole question mark on whether Israel can even be considered democratic. But Israel does have democratic institutions. It does have free elections. It does have, inside the green line in Israel, uh, civil, political, and human rights, and an independent judiciary and a culture of the rule of law. And that was present pretty much from the beginning, you know, maybe in nascent form, but it has developed and become entrenched. Um, and uh, there, it's reflected in the provisions that I mentioned, but of course also stronger, because much of the public identifies the court as a liberal institution tasked with the protection of individual rights. And the huge support you see now for the court comes exactly against this background of this culture of judicial independence, of uh, democracy that has been going on and, been, and being built for 75 years. And this is why, even if Israel democracy were to completely collapse one day, and I don't think it will, but even if it will, that deterioration, I think, will be slower than other countries whose experience with democracy hasn't been so uh, substantive and hasn't become so entrenched. Yes, so very, very interesting that after that, uh, we don't see uh, this stuff very often in, uh, in literature. So, this, so, so basically, um, when we discuss the liberal regimes, we, we discuss them mostly uh, in present, right? So we don't discuss how how we reach this point. Uh, right. So basically, that's, that's, uh, that, that's a huge difference. But, well, Israel, I mean, Israel did also didn't begin with this point. It wasn't extremely liberal in 1948 or 1952. It has also evolved, but I think what's also important to remember, Israel is a, it always was a very polarized country with many minorities and groups. And so no group single-handedly managed to gain complete power of parliament ever. And the fact that you have to take other groups into consideration, seculars and religious, religious and ultra-Orthodox, Jews and Arabs, Ashkenazi Jews and Mizrahi Jews, men and women, all these things, all these groups, vying for political control um, has generated a very pluralist uh, political system uh, and no one single party can uh, can take control of parliament. So it always there is a need for concessions and compromises and everything is vulnerable. And I think that vulnerability has also prevented uh, mass authoritarianism because you couldn't, you didn't have the political apparatus to carry out authoritarianism, for example, like Fidesz, that has two-thirds control of parliament and can unilaterally amend the constitution. No, you don't, or Kaczynski in Poland, you don't have that. Mm -hmm. so, so we see here how uh, actually institutional design depends on political um, constellation of power and the, the political situation 
uh, in a country. But uh, you mentioned that uh, because you said that there is a huge, uh, there is that there is like a um, track record of uh, traditional independence uh, culture and rule of law culture. My question would be: uh, Is this uh, idea of restraining the Supreme Court something that this government came up, or was that because um, I think there were some like uh, I'm just I'm just interested like. There were some concerns before, but what, was it? Was there any other political, uh, uh, clear, clear political will to uh, change the court uh, in relation to this activism argument before this government, or you think this government is the one who who definitely uh, um, put this in a, in a new form? Okay, so I think both actually. Um... There have been other attempts, previous attempts by previous governments to reform the judiciary, to introduce an override clause or to uh, change the powers of judicial review uh, and things like that. But here's why things are different in, in several senses. First of all, go previous governments that try to do these things or, or members of the Knesset who try to do these things never had the, the majority do it. So even if you look at just the governments of Benjamin Netanyahu, there was always uh, at least one member of his coalition that opposed these reforms. And so the government wasn't unified on these reforms. And because it wasn't unified, there was always at least one actor from within the government that vetoed these reforms, and they never passed. Uh, what we see differently now is that all of Netanyahu's government is completely behind these reforms. It's a, a, it's a very right-wing coalition. There are no centrist elements. There's, uh, there's no, the, uh, very few liberal elements, if that, in the government. Uh, and all of the parties in the coalition want these reforms, each for different reasons, for their own political reasons and needs, but they're unified and they're coherent. And you didn't have that coherence in previous governments. That's number one, why this is different. But also why this is different is because these reforms are also much more ambitious than the, those proposed in the past. Those approaches in the past always dealt with one aspect, override clause, judicial review, whatever. These reformers, what they tried to do initially is to do everything at once. The legal advisors in the executive branch and the unreasonableness clause and judicial review and the basic laws and the override clause and judicial appointments. So we didn't, we never saw something on this scale uh, before. Yes. So, so basically... So I have a lot of questions, but I, I really have like I, I need to, uh, uh, let's say, limit myself to to see important ones. So, so as you said, they have like the government now has uh, they they at least present that as if they have the people's will uh, to to do this. Uh, that's one thing. But the second thing, the second argument as I understood from from uh, um, from all of it is that the government also says these uh, reforms, as they call it. Uh, these reforms are nothing uh, bad because they they happen in other countries. These concerns uh, take place in other countries as well, so we are no different from other countries. And um, as I uh, saw, Attorney General, in, in her opinion on the on the draft bill, said that this is uh, largely missing the point uh, because the comparison to other countries uh, would not be good for Israel. And I think we already answered why. Uh, it would not be good for Israel because it's a very different system. Um, but my question would be more uh, uh, because as we saw this reference to, to comparative law and comparative practice, it has been used by illiberal regimes uh, quite often. So it seems, as you said, that in Israeli situation, this argument is not really plausible because the system is so different. So it's harder to, do you think it's harder to, to defend that? Argument and the second thing, more generally, I'm just not I'm not asking just about Israel, but more also about the liberal regime. As a constitutional lawyer, um, what do you think, like, about this uh, use and abuse uh, of, of comparative law by illiberals, and um, basically um, how to prevent, <laughs> like, should we prevent it, and how to prevent it? Well, I think it's impossible to prevent completely because people will use whatever arguments that are available. And I think it's also a very, it's very different when we talk about comparative constitutional law, you and I, as, you know, maybe experts in the field who are aware of all the methodological problems versus using it as a political weapon uh, on a public that obviously, 
you know, doesn't know the, all the details surrounding these things. So, uh, and of course, why should it know? They're not comparative constitutional law uh, lawyers. Uh, so the government has been doing that um, and uh, with limited success, by the way. And the reason why it's been doing with limited success is because once it started making these comparative constitutional uh, comparisons, academics such as myself, but I'm also part of this Professors Forum for Democracy, Law Professors Forum for Democracy, that has started to publish a lot of position papers, uh, dozens of position papers, uh, uh, tackling and unpacking all these arguments and showing how they collapse. So, so the government, for example, has been saying, you know, um, look, Canada also has a notwithstanding clause, right? So, or Finland also has a notwithstanding clause. Finland is democratic. Canada is democratic, and then it's up to us to say, yes, of course, but the notwithstanding clause in Canada operates differently. It doesn't apply to all the rights. Look, Canada is a federal system. It has provinces that decentralize political power. It has two houses of parliament, uh, and therefore the notwithstanding clause will not operate in Israel like it operates there. Um, and we're making, and, and the same thing we're making about all the other arguments, about political, about judicial appointments, and so on and so on. But I think also what's important to realize uh, here is that comparative comparisons or comparative constitutional law, um, it can go both ways. But in the end, what I think we're also realizing, uh, uh, at least what I'm realizing as somebody who's been dealing with this for the past few months, is that, that it, in, in a way that these comparisons don't matter. Because even if Canada were exactly the same in Israel, you know, exactly the same system in Israel, or Finland was exactly the same system in Israel, that still wouldn't mean that it would be a good idea. Um, and not just about the argument that we find familiar in comparative constitutional law, which is the argument about cherry picking. You know, you're only picking the features that you like, but you're ignoring the features that you don't like and, 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 and you don't import them. No, because even if things were completely identical, transplants are never identical. Right, uh, uh, because they operate against a background, a, a very different political ecosystem and a very different political culture. The same the, a mechanism that would operate uh, in the UK in one way, would the same mechanism would not operate in Israel in uh, in the same way because it, because the English have a different political culture, right? There uh, in Israel, we say this: the British have this sense of it is not done, you know, this political. Um, uh, consciousness about even if some even if a certain act is legal, it, it's completely inappropriate to do it and it's not done. In Israel, we don't have this. We don't have that it is not done because there's a lot less political shame. So you can't just adopt an institution and think that it will operate in the same way that it operates in a different country while ignoring all the political and social norms that surround the, how this institution operates. And therefore, these comparisons um, they have some utility because you can expose their fallacies in the way that we just spoke about. But even if you can't do that, if you can't expose their fallacies, it's also important to consider that they will not operate in the same way. So, for example, let's go back to the UK. UK has, under the Human Rights Act, this incom incompatibility declaration. The court cannot strike down statutes, laws but it can it declare that they are incompatible with the Human Rights Act, and Parliament can choose to amend these laws. And Parliament almost always amends these laws. But the way I see the Israeli political system uh, operating, that's just not going to happen in Israel. If the court declares a law that is incompatible with the basic laws, the Knesset will not feel a special urgency in, in, in amending this law. Because the political system is different, and we have to acknowledge this when we do all these comparisons. Yes, exactly. So basically, we, we these um, not just the liberal regimes, uh, but that also now this uh, situation in Israel, which we still don't know whether it can be completely complete characterized as completely liberal, because it's still um, uh, evolving. Like we will see what happens, but but. We have to somehow um, admit the limits of constitutional design in the sense of. Um, Basically, not not limit the constitutional design as such, but simply like there can be no uh, theory without the observance of political and social uh, circumstances, which is a huge responsibility 
also for um, constitutional experts and not just scholars, but also experts who are sitting with these governments and advising them. Um, but uh, so, so that's uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I have about uh, questions about uh, this academic aspect. But I would now want to just shortly go back to this um, um, claim that this could be uh, an end if if it's passed, it could be an end of democracy. I think you described quite well uh, in what way uh, this entrenchment of power can go further. Uh, but uh, my question now is, do you think, so, so what, uh, what can prevent it? Do you think that the protests uh, from people opposing the reform are strong enough uh, or, or to, to stop it? Or you think the president perhaps could, could have uh, some more decisive role or NGOs? So what is the main, or all combined, what is, what is, what is the, the main force uh, that could essentially stop the government? in doing this. Okay, so first of all, I think the government was taken by surprise in a sense, that the government didn't expect these protests. I mean, I'm sure they expected some protests, but they didn't expect to see 15 weeks of straight protests. I mean, uh, the numbers of people that have been protesting is, has been astounding and has been unparalleled. In the history of Israel that has seen many protests in the past, there nothing comes close to what's been going on in the past three months. And the government's been, and I think that's a major reason why also the government has now suspended the uh, the laws. Um, of course, it's only temporary, and they're, in the, they're doing this because they want to negotiate and all the things that we've talked about. But just the fact that they had to do this and that they couldn't you know, pass these laws as fast as they wanted to, uh, that itself, I think, is a testament to the power of the protest. And so, therefore, I think protests do have a lot of power, but it's not just a protest alone. What also we've been seeing is... Uh, uh, military reservists saying they won't show up for military reserve duty if these laws pass because they don't want to serve under uh, a country that is not democratic. We've seen uh, high-tech companies saying that if these reforms pass, they will relocate their activity to outside of Israel or some will transfer their funds to bank accounts outside of Israel. We see uh, Moody's credit rating in Israel has remained the same, but its projection has declined from positive to stable. Uh, we see some international pressure. President Biden has expressed concerns about the plans and has already said that Netanyahu will not come anytime soon to the White House. So all of these things together, the international pressure, the economic pressure, the protests, the high tech, um, the professors, the academics, all of these things together are playing a role. And I think they've already uh, been successful in, in, in severely slowing down the, the reforms. Uh, if they continue these protests and, and to this extent and even increase, uh, for example, if there are general strikes or things like that, if there are more pressure will be applied, then I think we're, we might see more achievements. But uh, the president, I think, is not playing a significant role in this. The president has played a more significant role in the past. It, the president offered his own plan, which was rejected by the coalition. The president tradition in Israel is more of a symbolic and ceremonial position. But I think the civil unrest and the civil protest has been so massive, and it continues to be massive, that I think it will likely be successful. It's not clear how successful. So will it stop completely the reforms? Maybe not. But will, will it be able to moderate or dilute some of these reforms? Probably yes. Okay, and just one last question. I'm very interested. Uh, so these people who, who support the government and support the reforms. So do you think, uh, do you think, I mean, obviously there is no uh, uh, exact answer to this, but do you think that the, the society is well informed about the implications uh, of this reform? And because do they know what they're really, um, uh, what, they, what they're really uh, defending? And why would society have, have such a huge wish to limit the, the Supreme Court, if that is the case? Or you think that this uh, support for the reform is just a derivative of the support of the government? So it's all of the above. So of course, partly the support of the government is worth it. And they, part of the, the supporters want these reforms because then they want to pass policies that will, so for example, I'll just give a few examples. So the ultra-Orthodox want these reforms because they want to be exempt from military service, like they have been in the past. And they view the court as an opposition 
to that exemption because the court has struck down that exemption in the past because of, on quality grounds. Um, the religious Zionists see the court as an institution interfering with the occupation or the annexation uh, of Judea and Samaria territories. And so uh, it's not completely baseless and it's, it's, and it's uh, attached to their political support. Um, part, and, 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 and look, it's, it's very high, but a lot of the people see, those who support the plan, whether rightly or wrongly, they view the court of course, as a non-democratic institution that doesn't represent people like them. And they view themselves, this is the trope nowadays, as second-class citizens, you know, because they don't, you know, they, 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 they go to the polls and they vote for particular right-wing parties, and then these right-wing parties supposedly can't enact the policies that they want because the Supreme Court stops these policies, or the legal advisors stop these policies. Now, this, of course, there's a kernel of truth into that, but what the reformers have done is they've made that kernel into a popcorn, right? So they've expanded it completely and, uh, and, and, and maybe engineered this perception that the Supreme Court is the source of all evil in this country, uh, which of course is baseless. So some of these people know what the plan is and they support it. Some of them are also informed by um, uh, either fake news or propaganda or exaggerations. And some, like many, many other people, are ignorant in the sense that they're, you know, people are often ignorant about many, many, many things. Though, So the Israeli public has learned a lot about Israeli legal institutions in the past three months, uh, much more than it knew in the past. Of course, they don't know all the details of the plan. They don't know every each and every detail of the plan. Many people know, on both sides, by the way, on both sides, don't know every detail of the plan. But the people who protest, who protest these plans, what they see is even if they don't grasp every technicality and provision, they understand deeply that it's a threat to liberal freedoms. And that's enough for them to get them to go and demonstrate. Yes, yes, exactly. So very interesting uh, to hear that there are actually other, um, because it seems that in other liberal regimes, uh, mostly the support for every reform that it was introduced was a derivative of, a, of the support for the government. Uh, right, but even, I think if you remember that even Right now, at least what we see in public opinion polls, that a significant uh, chunk of number of people who uh, are against the plan are people who voted for this government. Mm -hmm. So it's not 50-50. You know, it's not if you, there are between, it depends how you count them, I guess, between 25 or 35% of people who voted for parties that are in power now in the government, and they also don't like the plan. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that if you voted for these parties, then you're in favor of the plan. There's a significant chunk of people, portion of the number of people who are against the plan, even if they voted for the parties in town. And that means democracy is a place, I guess, <laughs> basically, you know. Well, in, is, in a sense, also, that's also the argument being made by the supporters of the plan. Look, why do you need the court? Look, mm -hmm. we're having a democratic conversation here. We're having a, a, uh, an exercise in political constitutionalism. And you want to protect your rights here. You're protesting and you're writing and you're and doing all these things. Of course, that's a, it's a problematic argument because often what the court does is protects those who can't rally yeah, 150,000 people every weekend for 15 weeks straight. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly, it's about the minority. Okay, wow, uh, amazing, amazing discussion. I just wanted to, like, the, la the very last question, what do you think, what's next? So what, like, what is next in the sense of uh, when, uh, when can we expect some changes to see wh whether it's uh, for good or bad? So, so basically, what is the plan that the government has, or is there any plan? Well, the government has, they're, they're doing two things. The government has announced, or parts of the government have announced that they were, once the Knesset resumes from the break, and if the talks fail, they will proceed as planned. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that's always a threat. There are big talks right now being held between two opposition parties and the government. And if there were, I don't, and it's too soon to tell, if there will be any agreements uh, or any compromises reached. There have been some offers on the table, but it's not really sure, clear what the proposition will say about these uh, uh, pro uh, about, about these offers. So a lot depends on what's going to come out in the next following weeks, whether a compromise will be reached or not reached. If a compromise won't be reached, or if the compromise that will be reached will be a bad compromise in terms of the protesters, the protests will continue. And then who knows what will happen, you know, it's, it's a question about how long, much longer these protests can be sustained. 
Uh, it's a question about um, whether we're going to see a constitutional crisis in the future. There's a question about if these reforms pass, will the Supreme Court strike down the reforms themselves when they come to the court when people petition against these plans? So everything is on the table, and uh, I'm very reluctant to make uh, predictions. Yeah, so I guess we have to, to uh, stay tuned <laughs> to see how it is. Uh, yeah, check, check with me in a couple of months. Oh, uh, we would love to. We would, we would love to. Okay, thank you so much, Professor. Uh, it was an amazing uh, conversation, and uh, I hope that in a few months uh, we can we can talk about some positive developments uh, in this Great. regard. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you for having me, Theodora. Thanks so much. Thank you.